you can align incentives uh, towards doing the right thing. So if we're successful, what we'll do is we'll make recycling fundamentally a better business. And if that happens, there's a stronger incentive for the world not to throw garbage in a hole in the ground. There's a stronger incentive to not throw plastic bottles in the ocean and things like this, because we're going to create an incentive to people collecting this, pulling it back into the system and reusing it. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, and welcome to episode number 93 of the Business for Good podcast. When this show was started four years ago, it would have been really hard for me to believe that there would be an episode 93, but here we are. It has been a really inspirational journey for me, and hopefully for you if you've been listening for some time, to hear the stories of so many entrepreneurs and others who are working to create a kinder, cleaner, fairer world. If you only recently started listening, though, I think you'll really appreciate going back and checking out some of those past episodes, nearly all of which are actually evergreen. In addition to startup entrepreneurs, we've had on business titans, high-profile politicians, investors, journalists, philosophers, nonprofit leaders, and more. So go back and check out those old episodes. And of course, if you like the show, feel free to leave an iTunes rating for it. If you don't like it, well, maybe you just keep your thoughts to yourself. Just kidding. Okay, now on to this episode. You know how you put all of your recycling, the cans, the bottles, the cardboard, etc., into the same bin? Well, have you ever wondered how all that stuff gets sorted out at the recycling factory? It's done mostly by humans. If you go to the show notes of this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com, you can watch a video about it. And let me assure you, it's certainly not work that I would want to do. I doubt you'd be applying for that job either. These folks are standing at a conveyor belt with recyclable trash whizzing by them at every moment. And they need to pick pieces off of the line to put into their proper bins at a rate of 40 items per minute. Four zero items per minute. It's tough to watch the work for even 30 seconds in the video. So imagine how tough it must be to do that work for hours every single day. Well, Matanya Horowitz had a different idea. He had been obsessed with robots since he was a kid, and fresh out of his PhD program, he wondered whether he could teach robots to sort trash more effectively and efficiently than humans. This dude started in 2014 by dumpster diving with his girlfriend to get trash, which he could then start training his AI on. Then he got some government grants to hire himself and a couple others, and you fast forward to today, and Horowitz's AMP Robotics has raised $75 million from investors. It employs 250 humans and has deployed a similar number of robots at recycling factories on three continents that have now sorted billions of pieces of trash and has even opened their own recycling factory in Ohio. Their robots work at a rate of anywhere from 80 to 120 pieces per minute. They don't need breaks, they don't get COVID, and importantly, they alter the economics of recycling to make it far more likely that what goes into your recycling bin actually ends up getting recycled. In this episode, we talk all about the economics of their robots, the trajectory Matanya took from being an academic roboticist to becoming a CEO, the role the venture capital has played in the company, what mistakes he made along the way, whether he thinks that robots will ever become sentient, and a lot more. It's an impressive and inspirational story from a scientist who's using his business to help solve a pressing sustainability problem for humanity. I'll let Matanya tell that story himself. Matanya, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's really great to be talking with you. I am really impressed by what you are building. And so before we get into that, let me just ask you like a really blunt question. Basically, right now, nearly nothing that we are putting in the trash or even in the recycling bin, it was as far, at least as far as plastic goes, seems to be getting recycled. So why? Why is nothing getting recycled? 
it, so it ends up being a really, uh, the, there's many different pieces to the, to the puzzle. Um, but a lot of the bottles, uh, the plastic bottles that you put in the recycling will actually get recycled. The trouble is, is that a lot of bottles do go to the garbage and then there's all sorts of plastics, uh, that aren't, you know, what you think of as, um, you know, the recyclable material. So, you know, children's play sets, um, you know, the plastics in cars, um, all these sorts of things. And it all adds up to these pretty unfortunate overall recycling numbers for plastics in particular. Um, but what I would want the uh, audience, to, audience to know is that most of the plastics, most of the metals and papers that you put in your recycling bin are recycled. It's just such a massive problem that that's not quite enough. So how much is getting in there? Because I, I have uh, read and we've done past episodes about like uh, biodegradable plastics and plastic alternatives and so on, mm-hmm. but it's like less than 10% of plastic gets recycled, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's essentially yeah, no, you, like, like a rounding error almost. I mean, it's like almost nothing. Yeah. I mean, it, it unfortunately is a pretty small number uh, in terms of uh, when you compare against what we produce, um, but it still is, you know, millions of tons of material that's getting recycled. So meaningful, uh, you know, impact much better than that going into say an ocean or, um, mm-hmm. you know, a landfill, but, um, but yeah, you know, society depends on plastic so much. It's just embedded into so many things we do, um, that it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, despite the progress that that's there, uh, you, the, the whole world really has a long way to go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so you have a long way to go. Let's rewind the clock just a decade when, you know, you are this, uh, very bright student, you're, uh, seeking your PhD. Uh, in fact, I know you have not only a PhD, but you have like four undergrad degrees and a master's. You're like the Doogie Hauser of robotics here. Um, so <laughs> that's very kind. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's a, a joke for people of a certain age who will remember who Doogie Hauser was, by the way. Um, but uh, my presumption is that you didn't get into robotics because you cared about recycling. Isn't that right? That, that's right. It okay. was much more I got into recycling because I cared about robots. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so first, why did you get into robots? And then let's figure out like what happened that you're like, I'm this dude who really cares about robots. And by the way, I'm going to take on recycling. So what happened that first gave you that love of robots? Yeah, you know, it's just, uh, I, I've always been interested in robots. I think that's something genetic, you know, this idea that there's... Um, you know, you can create a thinking thing. Like, what does it mean to have something that moves around in the world and can really think? I, I just find that inherently interesting. Um, and so I always watched a lot of, like, Battlestar Galactica, a lot of Transformers, a lot of these things. Battlestar Galactica is a little bit more existential than Transformers. Uh, but um, And it's funny, actually, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter now, and she is so into robots, it's unreal. Uh, I didn't really encourage her, um, but I can see that certain things are sort of uh, nature, not not nurture. But, um, but no, so I, I really was always interested in them. Um, when um, I saw something called the DARPA Grand Challenge, where a government agency, DARPA, created a competition for people to create autonomous cars that would go uh, on a race. And when I saw that, this was kind of an undergrad when I started seeing some of these results uh, from the competition, I really thought robots were much closer than maybe the wider public appreciated. Uh, so I thought it was appropriate to, um, or realistic to kind of aim my career in robotics and not have it just be this interesting thing. Um, but then that led to me going to Caltech for my PhD and what is essentially robotic path planning. Um, and after graduating, I was looking for areas where all this tech could be useful. Um, and I, I looked at a bunch of different things. Uh, I looked at stuff with drones. Uh, I was looking at stuff in manufacturing. Um, <clears throat> but I started visiting recycling facilities. 
And what I saw was there was such a strong need for automation in that industry that it was clear if you could make a product, uh, it would solve a meaningful problem for these facilities around uh, the the automation of manual sorting. Um, I was I was talking to these facility operators and they were just telling me, you know, they had huge turnover issues. They had huge quality issues because people aren't really thrilled about sorting through the garbage. <laughs> and, um, and that kind of drove me into recycling, um, which I really got sort of uh, fascinated with once I understood the core economics to recycling and how, how much they could, how much opportunity there was there. So let's talk about that because I, I watched this video. We'll post it in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But I watched this video about your work and it showed what the lines are like at recycling facilities. And basically, there's a conveyor belt and it's going quite fast. And there's just tons of things that have been in people's recycling bins, but it's all commingled, right? It's cans, it's bottles, it's cardboard pieces, and so on. And there's actual human beings who just stand there. And just by hand, segregate all of that material that's coming by. And they're expected to pick 40 pieces of trash per minute, per minute, 40 pieces. Think about that. It's like slightly more than one piece per second. And I don't know how many hours they can do that for. But I mean, I was tired literally after watching it for, you know, 30 seconds. And it, it actually kind of reminded me of a game. I don't know, Matanya, if you've ever been to Dave and Buster's, but they have this game that my wife and I like to play where... Uh, the lights, there's like, you know, a hundred light things and they light up and you have to quickly uh, hit them before they, uh, before they go dark and you get points for everyone you hit. Have you seen this game? Right. Uh, it's sort of like a whack-a-mole thing. I, yeah. I, I think so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's like yeah. whack-a-mole, except, you know, instead of celebrating that you're clobbering animals over the head, which, right. would, which wouldn't be as fun, <laughs> it's, you know, it just as lights that are going on yeah. and off. Um, but yes. yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like that, but with a hundred of them, you stand there with this wall in front of you and it's like, you do it for like 60 seconds and it is exhausting. Like it's exhausting yes. to do. And, uh, you know, it's funny that like what we think of as a game at Dave and Buster's, but this is these people's lives. Like people go there and they're just doing yes. this. And so like, it just seems insane to me that that is actually a job that uh, somebody has, yeah, that somebody has to do. I mean, and I just, it, it was just like really depressing to me. So imagine you seeing that. I mean, it, it, I mean, how long can somebody actually do that? Yeah. I mean, the truth is, is not for very long and do it well. Um, and there's all these things where um, you have to adjust to the job. So the first day you do that sorting, you're looking at this conveyor belt that's moving sideways relative to you. And so you, you get motion sick. And so most people, you know, they'll walk off the job after a couple hours the first night they they feel very sick and then you tell them, look, you got to do it for three days and you'll get over it. Right. It's uh, but it's not, not great. Um, yeah. And the result is the recycling industry can't really capture the full value of the material that these people are sorting. People miss stuff all the time. Even if you're trying really hard, you start zoning out after a couple hours, it's just human nature. Um, 40 picks a minute, depending on what you think may sound like a lot. It may not sound like too much, uh, but you know, doing that for more than a couple hours, you really start to get exhausted. Um, and fundamentally, the, that was the the main limitation in the industry until a technology like ours started to really make it uh, a dent. So, and, and the so, reason for that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so tell me about the technology that you have then. So instead of having humans standing around picking 40 pieces of trash per minute, you thought, well, maybe there's a better way to do this using AI. So what is it that you were theorizing back in 2014 when you started this company was the thing to do here? Yeah, well, what, what was really clear, and, and I wasn't uh, uh, the first to see this, you know, we as a company weren't the first to see this. 
Um, but what's clear is that the robots to solve this problem actually already existed. Uh, there's already robots that pick material off of conveyor lines, you know, all day and all night. They, you know, that this has been technology developed, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But what was missing was a vision system that could identify this stuff, even though it's smashed and folded and dirty. And that inconsistency you have item to item is what um, has really held back all of this automation. <clears throat> when you look at a manufacturing line, which this looks a lot like, you know, it looks a lot like little widgets being uh, um, uh, created inside of uh, some manufacturing facility. All of those widgets are consistent. They're built to be consistent. Um, the lighting conditions are highly controlled. You don't have a lot of, you know, other stuff that's near the widgets you're trying to produce. All that variability makes it much harder for a vision system to um, identify uh, the bottles and cans and paper you want. What's remarkable is in 2012, 2013, there were these big advancements made in AI um, or specifically in a topic called deep learning, where you could really teach computer systems to identify inconsistent items by showing them enough uh, examples. Um, so it might be showing them millions of examples of faces or millions of examples of cars in different lighting conditions. And uh, some of these new algorithms and these new um, sort of computational techniques started to really solve this problem. Hmm. So I'd been exposed to some of that deep learning stuff. Uh, and I was visiting these facilities and I said, okay, here, here's this really obvious need in the industry. Other people have been seeing it, but now the technology has opened this up. And it really before 2012, it wasn't possible to make that kind of vision system. Hmm, interesting. And, and so the robots that you have created are capable of doing not 40 picks per minute, but how many are they doing? So we the, the highest speed we've been able to get is about 120 picks a minute, um, but most of the time it's around 80. Okay, so at least twice as good as a human, and, and presumably they mm -hmm. don't zone out, they don't get tired, they don't need bathroom breaks, they don't have to go to sleep, they don't have to stop working, they're, yes. they're going 24-7, right? Yes. And, you know, I have a couple, you know, cheap jokes that go with it, but yeah, they come, they come pre-vaccinated, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> nice. these sorts of things. Yeah. Now we're going to give us a couple more of these cheap jokes, Matanya. They're, they're pre-vaccinated. All right. Very good. They're COVID safe. What else? Yeah. Well, and then, uh, well, the other, the other one I usually go to is, um, you know, when I'm talking to somebody about the robots, I say it's a, it's always a pleasure to talk trash. Um, uh, but nice. yeah, in terms of nice. the robots, it's, nice. uh, yeah, they're, they're tireless. Um, you know, they don't mind getting stabbed by knives, you know, this, this sort of thing. Because uh, there, there's all sorts of hypodermic needles and knives and nastiness yeah. in the material stream. So. But is that really true? I mean, if, they, if the camera lens gets scratched by a hypodermic needle, that's not a problem? Um, it, uh, that actually is, you know, I, I'm being a little glib. Uh, that would be a problem, but you very rarely see that happen. So. Mm -hmm. When people are reaching through the material stream, they do occasionally get pricked by hypodermic needles. Uh, for our robots, they'll get basically pricked by um, by those needles as well in their suction cups. But mm. you know, it's uh, you get a tiny hole in a suction cup that gets replaced anyway. Not not too big of a deal. Interesting. All right. So tell me about the early days then of AMP Robotics. So my understanding is that you didn't start out with these uh, advanced robots, but you were instead uh, dumpster diving to see what you could do here. So go back, <laughs> take us back to, to 2014 and what you were actually doing to try to start this company as somebody who you know recently had been uh, taken out of school and now you're ready to go into the world. What was it like? Yeah, you know, um, so first, I, I knew very little about recycling. Uh, you know, I would bet many people who are listening to the podcast actually know more than I did back then. Um, so I was trying to learn as much as I could. Um, as someone who had just finished their PhD, I did what 
every academic would do is I bought a textbook <laughs> and I read it end to end. There's this huge, like 800 page, like recycling, uh, the, it's called the recycling handbook. And it's, uh, you know, very academic and kind of breaks down all these things about recycling. But yeah, I started visiting recycling facilities, talking to the different people who, uh, who would operate them. Um, and really focused on this question of building a vision system. Um, so at first, actually, uh, focused on uh, what's called construction and demolition recycling. So wood and aggregate, bricks and, and this sort of thing. And so went to Home Depot and actually got, and got a crowbar and broke up a bunch of material and took tons of photos of bricks and wood and stuff like this and started to work on different algorithms to identify them. Um, and then, yes, did some dumpster diving. My, uh, you know, uh, uh, girlfriend, now wife, um, helped me. I was jumping into dumpsters uh, at recycling drop-off centers and pulling out a bunch of cans. Uh, and, um, you know, she would catch them as I throw them out of the dumpster. And we got a data set that way. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think... How, how, how long had she yeah. been your girlfriend at this point? Oh, a, a couple of years. Uh, okay. I was telling her, oh, don't, you know, this is going to be great. Uh, you <laughs> know, we're we're going to make a robot empire. Uh, but I don't know. She kind of rolled her eyes, but she was game. Nice. So, so if this had been two years prior and you're like just going on a first or second date, would you have invited her to go dumpster diving with you also for your startup or would you have totally. waited until you're still, okay. All right. It'll be a good test yeah, to see yeah. like how cool she is, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, if she's uh, not going to get as excited about the data as me, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. you know, all the stuff follows you home. So you want to make sure uh, <laughs> people are aligned. Yeah. Uh, so did you keep any of that old trash from back then from the, when you were dumpster diving? Like, is there a museum of Amprobotic somewhere <laughs> where it's like a, a history chronicled of the company with the original bricks that were smashed up? Um, you know, we do actually have sort of a garbage museum. Uh, I don't think that data is yeah. in there, uh, okay. unfortunately. You need a better historian for the company. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, to have. Exactly. Like, you, you, know, you, you walk into your lobby now and the first brick that you ever smashed was right, in there. The first brick we identified that. Yeah, yeah. If I'd been a little bit more forward thinking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you, you start dumpster diving. You're trying to create these algorithm algorithms that will work. Mm -hmm. uh, I presume you're not making any money from this. And, and so how are you funding this? Is it just your own time and money? Like what were you doing at the very beginning? Yeah, I am. Um, so I was fortunate to win a government grant. Um, while I was uh, wrapping up my, uh, my studies, I applied for a National Science Foundation uh, grant uh, through their small business innovation research program called an mm -hmm. SBIR. Mm -hmm. um, and winning that actually is what let me go kind of pursue this full time. Um, so the grant program is targeted at kind of high technology areas in the national interest. Um, and that also let me hire uh, kind of our first two uh, team members. Um, and so, did you, you hire know, the your, company? Did, did you hire yourself also? Yes. Yeah. Right. So you had, th um, so you had yep, three so. paid. You had three people being paid through this SBIR grant. Yes. Yep. Okay. And um, and then we we were able to start right at the beginning of 2015 with that grant. So I I started the company in 2014. Was purely on my time, kind of you know after work and, and this sort of thing. And then yeah, in 2015, and we were all in full time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, it, we then for the next two years had different grants, uh, that could support us. And at different points, I wasn't actually able to pay myself. And so I kind of lived off of my girlfriend now, now wife. Um, and she, um, you know, <laughs> you really was a huge part the, of that. from dumpster yeah. diving to just living <laughs> off of her income. This was uh, quite I, a I was, 
I was real. Yeah, I was real fun back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad that you guys got married. So let me ask you then, Matanya, yeah. like, you know, you were an academic for a long time, and you then made this transition to being a CEO. So how did you learn how to become a CEO of a company? Did you go out and get the CEO uh, academic textbook too, and read that cover to cover? <laughs> Like, you know, you, you're, you know, you're obviously a smart scientist uh, who knows a lot about robotics, but how did you learn how to become a CEO also? Um, you know, I'd say the hard way uh, is the short answer, um, making lots of mistakes. I did, I did read all the books I could um, about kind of leadership and management, but I, I found most of them to not be too helpful. Um, and I don't even kind of remember what I'd read, but, um, but yeah, the, you know, uh, I think I had faith that a bunch of sincere people who were excited about technology and a company mission could kind of make things work out. And that largely was true. But in terms of the core skill set of really being a good CEO, you know, many mistakes were made, uh, a lot of unnecessary friction within the team. Um, and uh, that's, uh, I think for many people, sort of the, the way you have to learn, uh, it really was mm-hmm. my first job after school. And so you know, even, even more learning, I think than most people had. So what would you say if there was somebody coming out, they want to be a, you know, a scientist founder, not just a CTO or a CSO, but they want to be the CEO and they're getting started and they're like, you know, I just heard this dude say he made a bunch of mistakes. I don't know what mistakes he made, but what's his advice for me? Like, what would you say now that you've been running this company for nearly a decade, what would you advise for somebody who is new to the CEO spot starting their own company? Like, what would you think that they ought to either try to do or try Mm -hmm. not to do? Um, I think what's most important is just being excited about what you're doing. And so being able to kind of grit your teeth and get through whatever issue you're dealing with. Um, most of the issues are going to be, you know, interpersonal stuff with other team members and which are the most emotionally taxing, at least it was for me. And so, but there's only one way of learning how to navigate that and that's to do it. Uh, and as much as I've made different mistakes, what I've seen talking to other people is everyone like very, very few people are naturally good at it. And so you're just going to have to go through a learning period. It's going to be tough and being excited about what you're doing is what gets you through it. So uh, yeah, you're going to be bad at it. Uh, Just power through it is the long and short of it. I like that. You will be bad at it. That's a good, that's good advice. I like that. Uh, And and not what, yeah. And not what most founders think, I believe probably. Um, Yeah. Tell me, Matanya, about the, is it Gollum? Is that the, uh, is that the uh, spirit animal oh. from Jewish, the, from Jewish mysticism? Oh, Golem. Yeah. Gollum. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm doing too much sci fantasy here. So not Gollum, <laughs> but Gollum. So tell me what is the Gollum and why does it matter to you? Oh, um, yeah. So it's this uh, uh, kind of ancient uh, Eastern European Jewish myth um, about this, uh, so in Eastern Europe, uh, the Jews were often persecuted, uh, and um, this hey, what, rabbi, what a shock. yeah, what a shock. <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, um, there was a uh, these stories about a rabbi who um, basically used kind of um, uh, a couple holy words to animate, um, you know, clay, but basically create a robot, uh, a robot that listened to the rabbi and. Uh, sort of helped protect the community and also did a number of different tasks for the rabbi. And, um, you know, it's, it's basically a, a whole series of little, you know, kind of short stories. Uh, a, a lot of them are, uh, it reminds me a lot of actually Isaac Asimov, a more recent mm-hmm. uh, science fiction writer. Uh, but, you know, you sort of have things where the rabbi might tell the golem to go do something 
and his instructions aren't explicit enough. And so the robot goes and, you know, fulfills the task to the letter. And of course, you know, it can be hmm. all sorts of wacky stuff, uh, like it, you know, creates too many items for the rabbi or overplows a field or something. Um, but it, it's sort of an ancient story fundamentally about robots. Uh, and my dad used to tell me these stories. I, I just found them absolutely fascinating for, for many of the same reasons. You know, what is right. what creates intelligence? How hard would it be to create a golem of your own? Uh, and I just, um, I just love these types of stories. Yeah. And, and your dad was in this field too, right? I mean, the, it looks like the, the robotic apple didn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. But yeah, again, um, some things uh, are more genetic than, than you might think. But uh, yeah, my dad did. Um, my dad was a professor in uh, control theory, which is the math around, um, well, it's around feedback loops. Basically, if you have a system that can sense its environment or sense something about what it's doing, um, what the, what is the math that lets you really uh, think about that? Um, yeah. So he, he worked on things that were more like missiles um, and bazookas and stuff like that. Uh, but it ends up being very similar to what you use mm -hmm. in robots. Yeah. Do you have like a statue of a golem anywhere in your office? Or is there like a portrait of one? Is there any, uh, any tribute to, to, to this Jewish myth here that's, that's inspired you? You know, I, I don't, um, I only have the modern variants, which are like, uh, <laughs> I have a little Battlestar Galactica figurine I got from a limited edition, something, something. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. Well, you, you, in, in addition to like a Captain Adama, you need to have a golem somewhere in your office. Yeah, totally. I, think. Totally. I think that would be, I think that would be nice. Uh, so I've made a few suggestions here for historical record keeping for, for AMP and now, for, <laughs> yeah, now also for, for right. artwork that you'll need. Uh, I'll, I'll keep going with my own recommendations here. Uh, I, I want to get back. <laughs> I want to get back, Matanya, to the like how you started turning this from a project into an actual company. But before I do, I want to ask you about this issue. So Golem is this robot who is basically a servant for his creator. The robots that you're creating are servants for us, right? Like they can do all these really amazing tasks. I presume you don't believe that they are sentient or conscious at all, but I presume that you've also thought about what if somebody does invent a robot that actually is self-aware and actually is conscious mm -hmm. and has some interest. So how far away do you think that is? And if and when that does happen, uh, what rights, if any, do you think that that robot ought to have? Ooh, that is that is a tricky question. Um so in terms of how far away sort of a self-aware robot is, I think it's um, a lot closer than maybe most people appreciate. Um, of course, the real test of self-awareness and what that means, like what does that really mean is, is a tough one. But I mean, I think you're going to have something that's um, sort of capable of reasoning about itself in some way within at least within at most 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. In some cases, we're actually very close. You know, what's remarkable is some of these, there are these milestones in artificial intelligence that seem impossible. And then you have a couple of research groups uh, like DeepMind um, or um, OpenAI that will show that it's possible and they'll release a paper and, uh, you know, it goes from being like totally out of the realm of the possible to like, oh, it only took an algorithm that looked like that. That's actually, that problem was more simple than we all thought. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. not interesting. It always, it's actually it, not it, that big of a deal. It always seems yeah. impossible until it's inevitable, of course. It, exactly. Um, in terms of rights and things like that, I think it's really tough because, you know, I think, I think there's kind of two views. Like intelligence is such a sophisticated concept that once you have intelligence that um, we, um, like it's sort of this very sophisticated thing. And you probably have something that's kind of alive. 
And I think what we're actually finding in the world of AI is it's the other way. Like you can get extremely intelligent behavior from very simple algorithms and very simple sort of feedback loops uh, with a, with a, only a little bit of memory in the system. And so you kind of see these very simple algorithms and they produce the behavior that you would kind of think of as being alive. And you say, well, I can really see how it's working. And there's not really this concept of emotion or feeling in there. And so do I want to treat this thing as, as if it's alive? It, it's a really tough question. I couldn't, I couldn't really yeah. weigh in on that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the question isn't so much if it's alive. I mean, uh, you know, a plant is alive, right? Like a tomato <laughs> plant is alive, but you don't feel guilty cutting a branch off of it. Right. Cause mm -hmm. you don't believe there's anyone home. You don't believe there's any consciousness there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the question would be, could we have a robot, you know, and, and there was an episode of Star Trek on the next generation about this, where it's called the measure of man. And, you know, the, the question is, can you harm data? Like, you know, mm -hmm. is, is, is data actually harmable? Or is it just like this robot and for there's no consciousness there? And, you know, nobody is saying that data is necessarily alive. But the question is, like, does he have any interest at all? Is there any consciousness of what it's like to be data? Yeah. And uh, it, it seems like we might be getting to that place at some point. I don't know, yes. you say it could be less than a decade. And so let me ask you then, like, knowing so presumably if that happened you would treat that robot differently right like you would not necessarily want to treat it as you would an inanimate object or something yes. right yeah well i mean so I, yes so first do you if your robots at amp i mean because i'm watching them and i'm like totally anthropomorphizing them i'm like oh my right. god it's like, <laughs> yeah. i felt so bad for them like they must be exhausted doing this work of course i know rationally that they're not Right. Um, but I'm like, the, I'm like the type of dude who, when I see like dots on a screen, I start you know, like feeling bad if one of them is excluded from the others. Like they're all on one side yes. and one dots on the other. I start thinking, man, that poor dot, he's all over there by himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so like, I realize like my own, you know, uh, irrationality on this. Um, but at some point you could envision robots who we would need to treat better. And then the question that mm -hmm. leads me to ask is, you know, we don't have to wait for there to be. Uh, individuals who are put to work in our service who we know are conscious. They're called animals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they definitely are aware. They definitely are intelligent. They definitely have interests. Like we, we feel like it's wrong to harm them in some way. And yet we still, you know, essentially force them to do whatever we want them to do. And does, has being a pioneer in robotics made you feel any differently about how we treat animals, knowing that they are actually conscious beings who are also basically our own golems who we are forcing to do whatever we want? Um, it's, a, it's a very deep question. I would say my background in robotics doesn't change my opinion about how we treat animals. I am, but I, I mean, in general, I, I sort of feel that we're not uh, sort of responsible stewards of the animal kingdom. Uh, and so, you know, I have, I have feelings about that sort of separate from our, from the robot side. I think bringing up data in Star Trek is actually a pretty good, uh, you know, way to frame the question because, you know, data in Star Trek really seems alive. Like he seems like he can feel, even if he says he doesn't, you know, really feel in the same way. And, but nonetheless, you know, we're, what we're seeing with some of these algorithms that are producing what seems like intelligence is like, they're not fundamentally all that much more sophisticated. I'm so, machine learning guys will disagree with me on this, but like sort of hype, uh, hyped up versions of like language models or database lookups and things like this. And so you, you end up with this spectrum where if you say like, okay, should I be treating this robotic system as something 
and that that sort of deserves more consideration or more process or some kind of due process or something like this, you you are closer to needing to treat databases and other things like that with mm. that same care. Um, and then you are, I think, at least as I see it, uh, the argument that a database is closer to that thing is stronger than that thing is actually closer to an animal. And so, you know, it only gets murkier it kind of as you yeah. get into it. But um, the yeah, there was another point I was going to make there. Sorry, I'm, I'm losing my well, train of thought. Uh, uh, yeah. That's okay. While the train returns to the track, I mean, I will say, like, you're mm-hmm. talking about Golem. Let's say Golem is out there, you know, plowing our fields, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we have animals who plow fields, not so much in the modern world anymore. But, you know, under the threat of violence, we take oxen and donkeys yes. and whoever. And, and, you know, under the threat of whipping them or prodding them, we force them to plow our fields. Yes. And so then the question is, like, if there were a robot to do that and the robot became self-aware, would we say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this to that robot or maybe we give the robot days off or you know like water breaks or i don't know i don't know what it is but it does seem like you know there's a lot of discussion about how we would treat self-aware robots when we already know how we treat self-aware individuals who are at our mercy which is really not that well um and so my my presumption is that we're not going to really unless we're afraid that they can actually overpower us in some way and if there's like some artificial general intelligence that is smarter than us and we want to stay on its good side like i i fear like the the track record of humanity towards those who are weaker than than us is not a uh, is not a good one. Oh, I, I would certainly agree about the track record. I, I think what we're going to find, I, I, I th- uh, what I would say is the algorithms that underlie that, let's say, robotic tractor, really, really matter. Um, and so, you know, if it's more or less the same types of algorithms that let you know, let's say they look a lot like, uh, you know, uh, Google's sort of search ranking algorithms or something like that. Um, I mean, those are very different types of algorithms, but let's say it's something like that, which is just purely mechanical in nature. You know, you, it's very easy to argue yourself into saying like, there's no sense of suffering on the part of the system. That is very different than potentially a more sophisticated algorithm where there might be some kind of history and ability to suffer. Right. Like how, like if you're thinking about like how from, from space odyssey, like, you know, that's yeah, or, or that, could, that wants, sort of something that wants to live. And yeah, but I think, um, you know, what you uh, will find as many sort of functional systems, functional robots, like, you know, ours would be kind of included in there. Um, you know, there's, there's you, when you have task based robots, there is no need for sort of an artificial general intelligence to power them. And so I think you're going to find very few of those have any real sophistication, um, mm-hmm. it's when you have general pers- pers- uh, general purpose systems that you're trying to create general intelligence. And that is where maybe you have a little bit more moral, you know, hazard or moral issues, but on a wide scale, I think, right. I think you're going to find more specialized devices where it's sort of like more sophisticated power drills and it's more sophisticated, uh, yeah. you know, picking or, or, robots in our yeah. case. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Although you could envision, you know, like the uh, the famous paperclip machine uh, example mm-hmm. that just like turns everything into paperclips and it's not specialized, but it just, yeah. that's what it does. But um, I, I fully realize but, I'm dodging the question yeah. where really I'm saying, I don't have an answer for you, but I think most robots won't present you with that question. I'm not really answering yeah. the question. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Well, for now, you're using totally insentient, unconscious robots, and uh, like <laughs> yes. said, there's no there's no no moral quandary presented by making them pick eighty to one hundred and twenty pieces of our trash mm-hmm. per hour. But you didn't start out that way. So let's go back like to those early days when you're you know trying to create a company back in 2014, 2015. You're relying on government grants. At what point did you think you know look we got to actually start getting investors in this thing? We don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars. We need millions or tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, my original hope was to use the government grants to um, kind of get the company off the ground and then really not bring in meaningful outside investors. Um, I sort of didn't know the venture capital world that well. Um, you know, I was sort of fearful of not having total control over the company. And uh, But I saw we were moving too slow. We were working really hard. We weren't making much progress. And uh, I was tired of being stressed out about not having any money and not getting paid and, and this <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah. So you know, it's funny when people, it's funny when people say like, Oh yeah, you know, money isn't the answer to your problems. Money can't solve your problems. Like for people running companies, it's like the last thing that you ever hear anybody running a company say. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, but yeah, so began to raise company or raise funding in 2017 and, you know, got some great venture capital investors. And what I didn't appreciate initially, <clears throat> but I do now is that, uh, if you have the right investors that are aligned in what you're doing, um, it's not about just the money. Um, you know, they've seen many companies b- get built. Uh, their guidance um, has been, you know, profound. And I, you know, if we set aside the capital needs of the company, I would not have been able to get the company this far on my own. It has taken the guidance and kind of coaching of our investors to help me get it this far. So I, I really wish I'd raised capital earlier. Uh, I, you know, I, as I look at it, I could have saved at least a year off of my life um, by doing it. If I try to raise capital in 2015. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I, I often think that, you know, companies don't go out of business because their founders get diluted. They go out of business yeah, because right. they run out of money. You know, that's it. Yes. They run out of money. That's how they go out of business for the most part. And so, when you think about what investors can do for you, like not just with the capital to increase your chance of surviving, but also to help you because they're literally invested in your success. They can not only coach you, but they can also do great things for you, like making introductions, pitch your company to other uh, potential customers who they know and so on. Um, So now it it looks like you've raised like about $75 million uh, for the company so far. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And how many folks are working there now? Um, We're coming up on something like 250 people in the company. Yeah. So if you go back to like 2014 and you would think like you're going to be the CEO of a company with 250 people, what percent chance would you have given that to happen? Well, I'd probably under 10% and I probably would have been right. Like there's, <laughs> there's, there's lots of ways <laughs> yeah. it could have, uh, yeah. you know, not come together. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, startup mortality, especially infant mortality is, is really, really high. So yes. you, you've passed like, I don't know if you've passed the great filter yet, but you definitely <laughs> have passed like a, 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 a serious filter here uh, yes. for, for, for survival. Um, so, you know, now what was this idea of basically using AI to pick out all these uh, pieces of recycling so they can actually end up being recycled? Uh, you now have how many robots out there doing this or actually being deployed working in factories as we speak? Yes, we have something like 230 robots of the sort of pick and place robot type. Um, you know, if you look at the number of vision systems that are like powering devices, it's a little bit higher of a number. Uh, we hmm. license the vision system to some other people's robots. Um, and yeah. we have a number of vision systems without robots. You start to get up north of 300. And so like 300 of these systems out there. And so what's the cost? Like, let's say I'm running my own recycling factory and I'm like, oh, Matanya, I need one of your golems here. Give, you know, what am I paying you? 
Um, you'll, so we have a couple different offerings, but you end up with uh, usually a couple hundred thousand dollars or um, per robot. And then you can end mm-hmm. up with projects that are sort of millions of dollars in size by deploying several yeah. robots at once. And what, what is the payback period? If I'm going to pay you $200,000 for one of these robots, I'm going to make back that money in how long? Um, it'll be uh, usually two to three years um, for these different systems. Um, and I'll, I'll say, yeah, you but- know, the systems prices are usually closer to something more like 300K. Okay. Um, well, I mean, that's good. If it's two to three year payback, that's pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. So um, a few years ago, um, in 2018, I think China stopped taking all of our uh, waste that we were sending over there. Uh, did that impact what you were doing? Like, was there all of a sudden now this need, like, the, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, and people had to figure out what to do with all of our waste here in the United States? You know, it it impacts a lot of the thinking in the recycling world. Um, because we were just getting started with our first couple of robots, it didn't impact us directly too much. Um, there was high demand for um, basically high quality commodities to be produced. And so a lot of our initial customers were focused on this question of how do I meet the higher quality standards now that the Chinese end markets won't buy the low quality stuff. Um, but uh, the you know, w- most of our business at the time was being governed by how many early adopters we could find rather than the wider macro conditions. Mm, okay. And how did you start selling? Like, did you have salespeople? Did you just go around to recycling facilities? Like, what was the actual method by which you started selling your first robots? It, uh, I was flying around to recycling facilities, pitching people, um, convincing yeah. them, kind of building credibility, and then later on brought on salespeople yeah. to, to fill in. But yeah, yeah. at first, was selling a lot. Yeah. You were the salesperson. Yeah. Yeah. You got to do it that way. So you under, you know, so you know what it's really like. Yeah. So how many billions of pieces of, uh, of trash? It must be billions by now. If you have hundreds of robots that are working 24 seven. So how many, how much trash have, how many pieces have you picked? I, um, I don't remember offhand, but I think it is in the billions of pieces, not tens of billions coming up there, but definitely, you know, in the several billions, uh, if I remember correctly. Amazing. And these are on multiple continents that your robots are yes. now working, right? Yep. And Between so Japan, US and Europe. Yeah. Amazing. So, you know, I, I thought that the business model when I learned about Amp Robotics was that you basically have these um, these robots that you sell to recycling facilities for them to use. But then I learned that you opened up your own recycling facility in Ohio. So why? Why decide to do everything else? Like if your specialty is just in the robotics, why do everything else that's needed for a recycling facility to open your own one? Yeah, it's um, so we've designed our robots so they could be easily retrofitted into existing facilities. Um, And we've been very successful with that, you know, a low cost, low retrofit solution for automation. But um, we were seeing that there is even more that could be done if you were to build a facility from the ground up around artificial intelligence and the things it could do. Um, hmm. And we were seeing that there were particular. So, mm-hmm. so you're now in the business of recycling, not just of sorting. Um, I, well, we so we picked a particular niche that's focused on just the sorting problem. So we don't take recycling from people like you and me. Uh, what we're actually doing is we're buying materials from the recycling facilities and sorting it again and then selling it. And it ends up mm. their tech has a couple, the legacy technology has a couple limitations. That means you're not really producing the commodities that people want to buy. Uh, and with a little bit of sorting, you can, um, but we were able to find some of these open niches 
um, that uh, where our technology was particularly well suited, um, but we're not set up to just take regular recycling. We sort of filter it through the recycling facilities. Yeah, interesting. And, and that facility that's in Ohio is now functional. It's operating, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, what, what were what were the capex needs to build that? Oh, uh, unfortunately, I can't really get into the like. Some of those numbers are pretty proprietary in terms of cost. But okay. you know, there's by specializing with AI, we're you know we're able to have a, a lower cost facility than is. Uh, usual in the industry. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, it's interesting. If I'm ever in Ohio, I would love to come out and yeah, check out this, uh, this amp robotics facility. And, uh, I'll, I'll, when you're there just for the sake of the robots, let them have like a one minute break for me just to, just so <laughs> I feel better about, about they, their labor they, needs. They yeah. feel better the more they divert. Uh, that's what they care about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've been programmed to only be morally satisfied with their work by doing exactly. billions of pieces. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How convenient. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. A high, high level of alignment. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's really interesting that Golem feels better, the happier his master is. Yes. Um, so let me ask you then, Matanya, like, uh, obviously you have learned a lot. You said you've made a lot of mistakes. You said you read some books on, on business or on being a CEO that weren't particularly useful for you. Has there been anything that has been particularly useful for you? Any things that you have learned, lessons, books, speeches, anything that you've uh, consumed that if somebody's looking and they're thinking like, man, like, you know, this dude was uh, was like an academic who then decided to start dumpster diving and then started trying to separate trash. And now is the CEO of a company that's raised $75 million, has 250 employees, has, you know, business on three continents. Like, what has been actually useful for you, aside from just the experience that you might recommend to somebody else looking to do something good in the world, too, like you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, so there's one book I really love, like, it's not kind of the core of everything I do, but I think it's very helpful when you're first getting started out, which is uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, I come back to it a lot, uh, because in, in conversations, because uh, for those who aren't familiar with the book, the author goes into different businesses where that got disrupted by some kind of new entrant, some sort of scrappy new entrant that wasn't nearly as well capitalized, uh, and seemingly had inferior technology. And, you know, this is like flash drives versus disk drives. Um, there's an example of uh, hydraulic uh, uh, tractors versus whatever preceded them. I think steam-based tractors. Uh, it's been a while since I reread it. But but there's, there's kind of this question of like, why do incumbent companies get killed by kind of small or get run over by smaller smaller entrants? And the book really breaks it down into a question of incentives within these organizations. Um, and... I think it's really powerful to understand that businesses to really build some intuition around one concept where businesses aren't these monolithic creatures, but have their own internal incentive structures. And you start to see that it doesn't matter how smart you are within these businesses. If your incentive uh, incentive structure is aligned in a certain way, you're not going to be able to innovate in certain ways. And you're, you're incentivized to let small startups kind of eat your lunch. Um, and so really internalizing that kind of helps under helps helped me anyway, understand um, sort of the level of sophistication businesses have internally and how important it is to understand why a business is doing what it is, what it, what it chooses to do. Um, so I just, I love the book and the way it breaks that down. Um, um, and then uh, the other kind of, you know, uh, canon of information for people starting companies, this is a really common one, I think, but um, Paul Graham's startup essays, which are these really easy to read bite-sized chunks that go into startup life and scaling startups. 
I think are just very accessible, very intuitive. There are some real kind of surprises in there, um, but map really closely to life um, as a startup founder. And so uh, I love those. And I, I point almost everybody to that. Um, pretty much any piece of literature around Y Combinator, I think is excellent. Yeah. And, and for those not familiar, Paul Graham is the, uh, the co-founder of Y Combinator. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting you talk about these uh, tractors because there's actually a really fascinating thing that I learned, which was that um, when the uh, when the tractor, the farm tractor first came on the scene, it decimated the oat industry. And you would think like, why are oats like oats were this huge, huge part of the American economy for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, like the oat industry crashes and it's like, why? And of course, it's because the biggest consumer of oats are horses. And all of a sudden you don't need horses on farms uh, or in the streets anymore because of cars and tractors. And so like, you never know, like, of course, the tractor industry decimated the horse industry, but then there's these collateral effects that occur, like, like a massive decline in oat production. Uh, Interestingly, with the success of oat milk lately, there's actually been an an increase in oat production. So it's amazing how like there's like cycles of these crops now. Um, Let me ask you, Matanya. So obviously what you're doing, what you're doing, of course, because you love robotics, but you also have this social mission. So what is it about doing this that makes you feel like you're contributing something good to the world? Like what's the effect that you want the company to have in the end? Yeah, it actually um, ties a little bit into what I was saying about the innovators dilemma, which is I think, you know, my, my personal belief and the belief of the company is that um, with technology, you can align incentives uh, towards doing the right thing. So if we're successful, what we'll do is we'll make recycling fundamentally a better business. And if that happens, there's a stronger incentive for the world not to throw garbage in a hole in the ground. There's a stronger incentive to not throw plastic bottles in the ocean and things like this, because we're going to create an incentive to people collecting this, pulling it back into the system and reusing it. Um, you know, if you look at uh, these unfortunate photos of, you know, plastics in the ocean, right? So all these like plastics that are washed up on beaches and stuff, what you'll see is a lot of high quality plastic bottles. Like there is value in that material. Um, If you can make it so that recycling infrastructure is more efficient. And so for every bottle you recover more of the the sort of uh, innate value of that finds its way back to to people and scrap pickers or municipalities that are arranging for for collection and hauling, then the the world's incentives are aligned with sort of doing the right thing. And and that's what we want to do. Nice to make doing the right thing the easier, more profitable thing, which is uh, certainly would be a happy, uh, happy confluence of of factors there. So you're obviously on this wild ride that most startup founders only dream of of accomplishing right now. And so you're unlikely to do anything else with your life for some time right now. But I imagine (laughs) there are... I imagine there are many other ideas that you have as somebody who has at least started one company that you wish existed. So what ideas do you have for listeners that you might feel like they should pursue? What do you wish existed that doesn't yet exist that might do some good in the world? Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a one trick pony now because all I think about is recycling stuff. Uh, but you know what we're doing at AMP is trying to reduce the cost of sorting and processing the material. Um, and so we can create all these different feedstocks. Um, the recycling industry has a challenge where <clears throat> there are what we call end markets for some materials. So somebody actually wants to buy the plastic bottles we're sorting out. Someone wants to buy the aluminum cans we're sorting out. That's not true for all the material. Um, so when we separate out, let's say, uh, you know, Barbie dolls, or when we separate out children's, children's play sets, this is kind of going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. 
the other 90% of plastics that aren't being recycled. Um, the, those materials do have value. Like the plastic can be reused. It can be reprocessed. It can be turned into a bunch of stuff. And so there is a huge opportunity in the creation of businesses around the reuse and recycling of material, not in terms of its sorting, but if you assume that someone else can sort it out for you at, at industrial volumes, um, you know, businesses around making that into new stuff. You know, I talked to someone who was trying to make Frisbees out of uh, recycled um, plastics, you know, as one example, but businesses around uh, food waste um, and actually finding a, a better use for that stuff um, or even models around reuse. Um, I get very excited about businesses that are trying to use recycle or use waste feedstocks in their process. And hopefully because of the constraints that we're relaxing with our technology, there'll be more of those opportunities. So, you know, anybody who wants to get into that stuff, you know, I, I'm excited and fascinated by it. Very cool. Well, if somebody wants to uh, hit you up sometime to chat about that, if they have an idea, how can they find more out about you and how to contact you and Amp Robotics? Yeah, you know, it's uh, sort of a, a common answer, but, you know, going through our website uh, is the best way. We read all those emails. Uh, you know, we have a contact us form. We're also on Twitter and all of these things so people can tweet at us. But, um, you know, and then we have team members who are focused on these questions of how do we help catalyze and markets um, as a particular example. But teams focused on just about everything in the circular economy. So always happy to talk about this stuff. Very nice. Well, we will certainly include your website and Twitter and so on in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But before I let you go, Matanya, I'll ask you, I'm sure what uh, any startup founder has been at it for nearly a decade is going to be asked. So will there be some type of an exit? Will your investors see some type of return on their investment? And if so, when do you think that might be? Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I would be highly confident I, that uh, we've created enough value that there will be a positive exit for everyone involved. Very hard to predict these things. Uh, you know, if we continue building up great infrastructure, there's, uh, you know, the chance we can uh, IPO in a couple of years. Um, but it, yeah, it's very hard for me to put a timeline on that. I, I think an exit is uh, years away, um, but uh, I feel quite confident in terms of, uh, you know, getting getting to that point. Very nice. I wonder how many startup founders don't feel confident in that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you have that, uh, that you have that confidence, Matanya. Great. And I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. Thanks so much for Thank all you. that you're doing to try to use robotic innovation here to solve a really serious problem of uh, plastic recycling. And I will look forward to seeing you in Ohio sometime and I can watch these golems all doing their work at 100 <laughs> plus picks per minute. Excellent. No, uh, thank you, Paul. I really appreciated the conversation and uh, always a pleasure to talk trash. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.